0: We are back in Paul's letter to the Romans this morning. Uh, We took a break for a little while during uh, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, sometimes called Advent, as we were in Matthew's Gospel, his account of Jesus' life and teachings, looking at the fulfillment of prophecy uh, that we saw Matthew pointing out for us in the birth and the early life of Jesus. Uh, We're back in this letter from Paul to the Romans, uh, remembering... That uh, we understand what Paul is writing to this church in Rome is not just the words of man, but it's the word of God coming through his authorized spokesperson. Uh, Paul, a former terrorist and persecutor of the church, rebel against Jesus and all that he stood for and all who followed him, was uh, saved and redeemed and transformed by the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, who brought Paul into his kingdom transforming Paul into one of his chief spokespersons to be the one who would go as a Jew to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus brings salvation to sinners, to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul uh, went around planting uh, churches. Uh, This church in Rome, though, was not planted and established by Paul, but Paul is writing to this church to remind them and to support and encourage them in the gospel. But his desire is to go to Rome And then to be supported by them, then to go to Spain, to the ends of the earth, to see the gospel of Jesus proclaimed. What is this gospel that Paul has been uh, laying out for us in this letter to the church in Rome? We saw that what Paul said was the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And how does salvation come? It doesn't come through what we do. Because due to our sin, we've been separated from God. Every single one of us. Just as the good news came first to the the Jew and also to the Gentiles, so also the bad news that all of us have rebelled and deserve God's wrath and His just punishment due to our sin. But He provides a way for redemption and salvation. Not through what we've done. Not through keeping the law. Not through trying to be good. But through faith. Trusting in Jesus and what He has done. And by trusting in Christ, as our representative, as our deliverer, as our Savior, Christ's righteousness, His fulfilling and keeping the law is credited to our account, or in Paul's language, imputed to us so that we stand before our God, delivered, saved, redeemed. We can now relate to our God as He is our Father, relating to Him as Jesus related to Him, speaking and calling Him our Father like Jesus called and related to Him. And the confidence we have is that nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Good, wonderful, marvelous news. But what we're going to find is, as we begin chapter 9 of this letter to the church in Rome, Paul is overwhelmed and overcome by grief and tears and despair. Why? Why tears and despair in the context of such good and great and marvelous news? If you would, look with me in your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 9. Uh, If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 945. We're going to be looking just at verses 1 through 13 together this morning. So if you would, follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gracious Uh, revealing of Yourself to us, uh, not only through Your creation of the world, but specifically through Your prophets and Your apostles and in the last days, Jesus. We thank You that now You've preserved for us this accurate record of Your teaching to us, Your people. And we acknowledge that there are hard and difficult things to understand and comprehend in Your Word. And that's how we need You. We need You, Holy Spirit. Right. Guide me as, as I teach. Guide us as we listen and hear from Your Word. Right. We pray that our desire would be to submit to You, to follow You, and to love and depend upon Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Imagine you have... Uh, uh, a relative, a niece, a daughter, a sister, who's been longing to have a child, but has not been able to. Uh, years upon years of tears and grief and sorrow because they've been unable to bear, uh, bear a child. But news comes that she's pregnant, and you're on, and, and she's had delivered and had the baby, and you are on your way to the hospital to go and meet and see her. You're expecting to walk in and see. Joy covering her face. As she's excited having heard this good news, this good announcement that you have had a baby. Long awaited. The, the waiting is over and the child is here, but you walk in and you're not met with joy and happiness. But you see sorrow and grief. She's weeping, overwhelmed with tears, Not because there's anything wrong with the baby. No, the baby's in perfectly good health. The reason she's sad is not because of who's there, but who's not there. You see, the night before, her husband had an unexpected medical accident and died. He's not there to share and to delight in and rejoice in this anticipated Hope of finally experiencing what they had been longing for. And although she's overwhelmed, yes, with great joy and happiness, the sorrow and the anguish is deep. In a similar way, that's where we find the Apostle Paul here in this passage. Because he's just proclaimed and announced to us great, incredible news that. We have been longing, that humanity has been longing to hear that we can be restored into a relationship with our Creator and our God. Listen to how Paul ends up uh, the the last part of of chapter 8. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. What marvelous good news. But, But why? Why does Paul move from such beautiful news to this? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's filled with grief. That's what we want to look at this morning. Kids, if you want to draw a picture connected and tied to this, I want you to draw a line down the the middle of your page. On one side, I want you to draw a picture of something that brings you the most happiness. The most joy that that gets you most excited. And on the other side, I want you to draw a picture of something that brings you the most tears and the most sorrow. As we go through, what we want to look at is first we want to look at Paul's tears. We want to look at the, the question that comes up in light of the tears and the sorrow that he has. We want to look at his answer to that question. And then we want to see how does what Paul is talking about apply to us. So first, let's look look at the tears. I mean, this is not minimal sorrow Paul has. Notice how many times he has to, to affirm and confirm the depth of his grief. I'm speaking the truth, and he says he's speaking it in Christ. I'm not lying. His conscience is bearing witness in the Spirit that he has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Notice how deep his sorrow is. Listen to what comes after this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. These deep tears, this grief, so deep and so overwhelming is this grief that Paul says that if I could... If it was possible, it's not. But if I could, I would wish that I could be cut off from Jesus. That I would experience the cursing. The, the, to be devoted to destruction and suffer eternally in hell apart from God. If my brothers in the flesh, Israelites, could be saved and know Him. That's... The source of Paul's tears, his grief, this great promises, this good news of the Gospel that he has been proclaiming. As he looks around, he's seeing that the Jews are rejecting this message. They're rejecting the promise that first came to them. Paul here is communicating his sorrow and his grief at, at this, he, he's also, remember, as he's gone around and communicated and has been sharing the gospel, he's been met with, uh, with um, accusations uh, that he doesn't care about the Jews, uh, that he's denied the law of Moses and that he doesn't care about the law. Here, Paul is seeking to affirm, "No, I have a deep love and passion for the Jews. of a deep love and a desire that they come to know Christ, but he's overwhelmed with this grief. Because as it stands right now, many of them have rejected Jesus. And by rejecting Jesus, they stand accursed. They stand cut off. We've seen this response, haven't we? Remember, just over the past few weeks, the announcement and the proclamation that the promised King of the Jews had been born... The one who had bring deliverance to the people of God and blessing to the nations had been born. And who do we see rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at the proclamation of His birth and going to seek and bow down and worship Him? It was not the Jews. It was the Gentile magi. The Jews, the religious leaders, in Jerusalem. When they heard, they knew exactly where He was going to be born, but they responded with indifference and apathy and did not go to seek out their Messiah. Think about as Jesus' ministry comes about. By and large, He is rejected and suffers greatly. His greatest opponents as he's going forth and proclaiming the good news of the message of the kingdom are the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, they are the ones who conspire along with the Romans to have Jesus put to death, rejecting this good news of the message. But after the resurrection, as the apostles move forth, we see great work and movement within the Jews as revival takes hold within Jerusalem. And Jews begin to convert by the thousands and recognizing that they rejected their Messiah and see that the resurrected Jesus is all that God had promised. And they turn and look to Him. But that's mainly in Jerusalem. As the Gospel goes out, and as Paul goes out, Paul himself is evidence of one who rejected it, but as after he's converted by Christ, he goes out to take the good news of the message to the Gentiles But first, everywhere he goes, where does he go first as he shares the gospel in all these cities? He goes first to the the synagogue. First to take the good news of the message to the Jews. And what happens time and time and time again is he's rejected. He's kicked out. He's persecuted. He's beaten. He's imprisoned. Him along with the other disciples. And the fact, the reason Paul will find himself in prison and headed to, to Caesar, the whole reason is because of the Jews' rejection That Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And Paul can't understand this. He's grieving over it. Notice why, why this is such a big deal. They are Israelites, meaning descended from Jacob. To them belong the adoption. Remember what we saw as you're going through Matthew's prophecy. Israel was the nation that God said, You are my son. The glory as God was dwelling with them in the, the tabernacle and in the temple His glory dwelt in a special way in their presence. The covenants of these promises that God would work and redeem and call a people to Himself that He gave them a land and people in His presence. He's given them a law which they among all the nations have that demonstrate the character of our God. To them belong worship, and tied up in that is the sacrifices and the way to deal with your sin and your rebellion against God and all the promises that God had given. Remember, the promise given to Abraham is that you can have righteousness through faith and be made right with God. And to them belong the patriarchs, those Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, going forth even uh, David with the promise that the king would come from him. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ This promised King descended from your people and He is God in the flesh. And you've rejected Him. You've turned from Him. Paul is looking and he's seeing by and large what is going on is that the Jews are rejecting Jesus and the Gentiles are coming to faith. In fact, the majority outside of the church in Jerusalem and in Judea, the rest of the places where Paul goes, all of the churches in these letters written in the New Testament are written to majority Gentile churches. This letter to the church in Rome, the Jews are a minority in this church. They have not been embracing the hope and the good news of the message of the gospel even though Paul told us at the beginning of Rome of the beginning of the, this letter to the church in Rome that this message was to the Jews first but it continues in our day estimates have it that of the 15 million or so Jews in the world today only 350,000 would profess faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Uh, Of the the church worldwide, of professors and believers in Jesus, 25% of the world's population 2.4 billion people profess faith in Jesus. One out of 6,800 of them are Jews. A small, small, small minority. And very few even of the Jews in existence today profess faith in Christ. What does this mean? What about God's promises Has His Word failed? Has it not come about? Has He not done what He has said? That's the question Paul comes up with here. That's where the tears lead. That's what people may begin to ask. Paul, if this is your message, that salvation comes through faith in Jesus and that righteousness comes through trusting and hoping in Him, and it's through Christ that we're made right with God, if this is the promise, then why aren't more Jews believing? Why are they rejecting the gospel? Maybe this means God hasn't kept His promises. Maybe it means He isn't faithful. Don't you remember, Paul, what God said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that I'm going to bless your offspring? I'm going to work through your offspring? I'm going to be God to you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant? What about these promises? Notice that's where Paul goes in verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. You see the question line in the background? The question that Paul is beginning to address as he looks and he sees, what does it mean that the Jews by and large are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? Does that mean God's Word has failed? Paul says no. No, it does not mean that God's Word has failed. Why? Well, look at what he says. Because he goes on. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul's saying uh, this this promise that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, it was never a universal promise to all biological, ethnic people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was always connected not to the flesh, but to the promise. Do you see the language that Paul uses there? There. Not all, are, uh, not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, it says in verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And here in this context, he's, he's saying uh, this is, has actually been true from the beginning. If we're going to understand rightly God's promises and understand whether his word has failed or not, then we've got to understand how, what these promises were when God made them. And where does Paul go? He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Abraham where this initial promise was made. And he gives us the illustration and the an example of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is not mentioned by name here, but that's the context of what's going on. I don't know if you remember, but... As God had promised to, to Abram and Sarai at the time, who were childless, who were old, God said that He was going to bless them with a child, but they thought God was taking too long. So they took uh, things into their own hands and decided to have, uh, for Abraham to have a child by their, their servant Hagar. Ishmael was born to them. But God comes, and what does He say? It's through Isaac that your offspring will be blessed. It is not just the child of the flesh that everyone descended from Abraham. Ishmael is not included in the promise, God said. It's only going to be through Isaac. In fact, Abraham later, after Sarah dies, he has other uh, wives and concubines, and he has other children, and they aren't included in this promise either. So again, Paul says, This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the, the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. It isn't Ishmael. It will be through Isaac. But some might come and say, well, uh, of course Ishmael is not going to be considered as one who's a, a part of the promise. Of course he's not going to be one of those who are, would be considered a child of God because he was born from an Egyptian. Give us a better example, Paul. Paul says, I will. Notice in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man. So Rebecca is Isaac's wife. Our forefather Isaac, though they, had not, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, Here, uh, Paul says, well, let's look at a different example. The, the, The next generation down, twins were born. That means they had the same father and the same mother. They were conceived at the very same time. There is no difference with them biologically in that way, as far as their, their heritage and their connection or their relationship. But yet, Paul says and points out that both of them were not heirs of these promises. Jacob was the one who it was told that the promise would go through. And it was not uh, Esau. And uh, In fact, as, as we look and see, Paul gives us, the explanation for why this was true. That, that it wasn't through both of them, it was just through one. Why would it be through Jacob and not Esau? Was it because uh, maybe Jacob was a, a better guy than Esau was? Or that, that uh, on down the line later, uh, Jacob would trust and walk with the God of, uh, of, of Israel and Esau wouldn't? No, 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 Paul says. Notice what he says and what he points us to. When was this determination made? He says it was, although they were not yet born and neither had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Before they had done anything. So, so Paul's beginning to dig deeper. He says it's not due to your, uh, your, your race, your biology, your genetics that make a distinction and, and make it so that you are automatically a partaker of the promises of God. It's also not based on your works or things that you've done. There is no element of foreseen works or performance or merit in the lives of Jacob or Esau. If you want to go back and read their story, neither one of them are models of holiness and godliness and righteousness. Jacob is a crooked and deceitful man and a horrible parent. And yet God says it is through him that my promises will move forth. And it's not through even what Paul would look at here and and see as foreseeing faith that is going on. But notice, it's not rooted in any of those things. Not in foreseeing works, not in biology, not in genetics, not in anything that they would do. But what is it rooted in? Notice what Paul says. It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here, Paul is rooting and he's tying the reason why God set his, his love, his redemptive work and purposes on Jacob, and why he passed over and left Esau in his judgment And the curse that he deserved for his rebellion is not rooted in anything that had to do with Jacob or Esau. It's not rooted in their performance. It has nothing to do with their genetics. It is completely tied to the sovereign grace and sovereign choice and purposes of God working and moving in their hearts and their lives. That's where Paul's pointing to here. In fact, this this language that he uses, sometimes uh, we, we stumble over it, that God would say, Jacob, I loved. But Esau I hated. Here he's quoting from the prophet Malachi as he's reflecting back on uh, not just God's dealings with Jacob and Esau as individuals, but then later the work that he's doing within Israel as a whole and, and Esau and the nation of Edom as a whole. But God describes his, this language of the way that he's relating to Jacob is one of love. And if we understand the biblical concept of what he's talking about there, he's talking about his covenantal love and his work of bringing about his promises to fruition in his life. And we see that the result of God's loving work and gracious provision in Jacob's life is redemption, is salvation. That Jacob comes to believe and trust and put his hope and his confidence in the God of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob has the faith of Abraham, and receives the promise, not just of land and of offspring and that blessing would come to the nations through Him, but remember what has Paul been pointing to of what that chief promise is. Righteousness comes through faith. But the result in Esau's life is not God's sovereign, gracious work to redeem and save Esau, but it's to leave him in his sin, to leave him in his rebellion, choosing that the promise would go through the line of Jacob. And that salvation would come to Jacob and those who would also believe after him and passing over Esau. You might begin to wonder and think because sometimes when we we hear discussion and talk about uh, predestination and election and discussed in this way, sometimes people hear this and they think that it's uh, it's speaking about God in a way that... uh, that distorts His character, that it takes away from His goodness and His grace to say that God would choose some to save and redeem? He would choose some to place His redemptive work in their lives and his heart and their heart, and He would pass over others, leaving them in their sin? What kind of God is this? Paul says this is the kind of God who keeps His promises, And far from this truth and this this doctrine of election and predestination, uh, taking away from the holiness and the goodness and the faithfulness of God's character, Paul goes to this aspect of our sovereign, powerful, gracious, working God to say, this demonstrates his faithfulness. Because if we did not have a sovereign God like this, then as we look back on these promises that He made, one option would be is God made all these promises to redeem and save. God made these promises to, for an everlasting covenant to be uh, the God of, of, uh, of Abraham and his offspring after him. But He actually really didn't have the power or the ability to bring it out anyway. He's just making these promises and crossing His fingers hoping that, that there would be some people from Abraham's line And Isaac's line and Jacob's line that would actually believe and hope and trust in him. And there would be somebody that he could bless with the promises of salvation and righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. But that's not the God we serve, Paul says. The other side would be what the question Paul's addressing here. That that God's word has fallen short. That he had the power to bring about the promises, but he just decided, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to work in the lives of Jews or anybody else. But that's not the God that we serve, Paul says. Paul points to the sovereign, gracious, electing and choosing and calling and redeeming of some and not others as the foundation of demonstrating that God's purposes and His Word has not failed. Paul is saying, look from the, the beginning as God is carrying out His promises. It wasn't a universal promise to all of the Jews. From the very beginning, God chose to save and redeem and work in some and for them to be partakers of His promise. And He chose to pass over others. And it continues now. So that, that's why Paul says that not all who, uh, who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And not who, all who are children of Abraham uh, are His offspring. It's not those of the flesh, but those of the promise. And where does the promise come from? It comes from God's sovereign and gracious choice and work and election and God's calling those that he would save. This is why Paul says is where it hasn't failed, because God has saved and he is saving and he will save all that he intends to redeem and bring about. Now notice, I know some people, as I've uh, talked uh, to them and seen just interactions and, and articles and things, some people's response would be, I, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in election. That, that's really uh, not uh, a valid way of speaking as far as the Scriptures go. Because we've seen here in this context, Paul talks about election. Paul p- talks about predestination. We must wrestle with it. You can't just say, I don't believe it. You need to understand, well, what is it that the Scriptures mean by those words? You may disagree with the way that I'm portraying and explaining what Paul is getting at here, but you can't deny that the Scriptures speak about predestination and election. I would argue that here it's rooted in God's gracious, sovereign choice over against the rebellion and rejection of humanity. We've seen Paul talk about this before. Remember back over in chapter 8. Look in verse twenty. 9. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Do you remember when we went through that verse a while back? We said it wasn't about foreknowledge, about God just having cognitive uh, understanding of those who would exist in the future or what they would decide and do, but it had to do with God intimately knowing and placing His love. It's the same concept and language uh, ideas that Paul's using in his discussion about Jacob. Jacob that he loved, that he placed his redeeming love and purposes on. And here we see what does Paul say? Those that he had this particular special love for, he predestined. He predetermined what about their lives? That they would be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That there would be many. Paul is confident that God will save many people. Why? Because it flows out of not what humans might choose or decide or do in the beginning or later on in history, but because of what God has determined and purposed from the beginning. Paul goes on. And those that He predestined, He called. And those that He called, He justified. And those that He justified, He also glorified. That same language comes up here. Notice, Remember what he said? It wasn't because of their works, but because of Him who calls. That calling is effective. When God says, you are mine, and He speaks life, they come alive. Harris and I are reading the story this morning about Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice in that story of Lazarus, Jesus calls. Lazarus had no choice. Lazarus had no ability to respond. Why? Because he was dead. But when Jesus calls... When Jesus speaks, the one that Jesus loved, He speaks into this graveyard of dead people, and one comes alive. Who? Lazarus. Why? Because Jesus in His sovereign power and grace and mercy says, Lazarus, come forth. And He acted and He responded and He came forward. Not because of anything about Lazarus, because of Jesus. And as we look here, what Paul is saying is you can't look at the the response of, of the of the Jews presently in thinking that this reflects on God not keeping His Word, of God's Word failing, because from the beginning the promises were never universal that all who descended from Abraham would experience and participate in these promises, but it was those whom God chose, those whom God worked specifically and graciously and mercifully in their life. And everyone who is believing now is believing because of God's work in their life. And those who are not believing now are not believing because God is not working and moving. Now I know that may bring up questions. Hard and tough questions about the character of our God. And guess what? Paul understands and hears those questions. He, in fact, he anticipates them. Next, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of them. In fact, look at verse 14. Maybe some of you are thinking this right now. Well, if what you're saying is true, then is there injustice on God's part? Well, we'll look at that in upcoming weeks. Or you look in verse 19. Then then you're going to say, then why does He find any fault in us if it's His work and His movement? We're going to get to that. Where where I want us to, to focus and think about today is to apply and think about the implications of what Paul is unpacking and establishing for us here. Of the implications and the truth that we serve a sovereign and powerful and mighty God who redeems and saves rebels and sinners and those who are dead and unable to come to faith in Him apart from His sovereign work. Notice first that sometimes the the response might be, well, if you believe in a God who acts and operates like this, then you must not care about sharing the gospel. You must not care about evangelism or the lost, because if that's the way it works, then God's just going to save whoever he's going to save, and it doesn't really matter what I do. I don't need to be concerned about the lost. Well, Paul would say you then have had the completely wrong response because do you see Paul's response here? Paul, the one who is writing this very same thing that is telling us that God's promises have not fallen short because God is saving and redeeming who He would save. He's full of grief. He's full of heartache. His heart breaks at those who are lost because His kinsmen in the flesh Because they have rejected Jesus, they forfeited all of the promises that come from their God. And what is the chief of those? Righteousness through faith. Their result right now, where they stand, if they continue to reject God, will be a curse. They'll be cut off. They will suffer in hell forever and Paul grieves and he is burdened over this, and it drives him to share the good news of the gospel. He'll talk about this later in a couple of chapters. It is this the burden of those who don't know Jesus that they would hear the good news of the gospel that Christ saves sinners, that he is going forth. What about us? What about our heart, our burden? The the fact that God saves those whom He determines. We should have confidence and boldness to share the gospel because we know God's word will not fall void. He will redeem and save those that are His, and they will come to faith. And we should grieve. We should grieve for those who don't know Him. Here, Paul is grieving for the Jews. And we should as well. The promises are theirs, the covenant is theirs. We as Gentiles, the majority of us in this church, have come to believe these promises. But those who have descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, still, the majority of them still persist in their rebellion and their rejection against Jesus. We should long for them to come to Christ. Right now, it seems like the focus and a lot of the questions that that Christians are, are asking have to do with Israel's place in the land in the Middle East. And might I say that That's the least of our concerns. Because as long as they persist to reject Christ, they forfeit all the promises, the chief of which is Christ himself. It doesn't matter if they're in the land without Jesus. Our burden should be that they come to faith in Christ, and so should it be too of Americans, and Saudi Arabians, and Mexicans, and Hondurans and Brazilians we should long that every tribe and tongue and people and nation come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus because apart from him there is no salvation and they are cursed and cut off it should leave us grief for the lost a longing to see people come to Jesus but also humility Sadly, many who have taught this passage and this doctrine the way that I'm teaching it this morning have been criticized as being arrogant and prideful. And I will say, I have met a lot of arrogant and prideful uh, Reformed Presbyterians who hold this doctrine. They look down on those who don't believe and understand this in the same way and criticize those with other theological understandings. Shame on us. Shame on us. This should be the most humbling doctrine in the Scriptures. And if we believe this, we should be the most humble people to walk the planet because we realize I should be Esau. I should be Ishmael. There is absolutely nothing in me that would lead God to redeem and save me. if If He were to turn away from me, the only thing I deserve is a cursing, is rejection, is destruction forever. But in His mercy and His grace, I don't know why He has placed His love on me. Why? I thank you, God, that you do. And I thank you that you have, but I know what I deserve and it is your rejection. And as I look around, I realize that I am no better than anybody else. And that's what Paul's addressing in this letter. Because these majority Gentiles in the Roman church are beginning to think, huh, maybe the reason we're the majority here is because we've gotten it more than the Jews have. And Paul is seeking to humble them and remind them. That you were saved, not because of your works, not because of your thoughts, not because of your theology and your ability to figure out the Scriptures, not because of any foreseen faith, but it was rooted in the sovereign love and free grace and mercy of your God who saved and redeemed you when you were dead and could do nothing. That is the good news of the Gospel. And that humility then should move us to worship. Because how in the world was it that we were saved? Remember what Paul says. Who was the Messiah? It was Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. And it is this God-man who suffered and died, who took the destruction and the cursing that I deserved and that you deserved to redeem and save me as one of His people. It should lead us and fuel our worship and our proclamation of our good and gracious and sovereign God. Who is this God? No one should have been saved, but in His mercy and in His grace, He's chosen to save some. That should leave us with humility and awe before a gracious and sovereign God. Do you know Him this morning? Do you know this God who saves sinners through the blood of His Son? Hear Paul's longing. Hear my longing. Hear the longing of our God coming through the Scriptures that you would be saved. Hear the good news of the message of the gospel that you, apart from Christ, will suffer in hell forever. But the good news of the gospel is that if you look and place your faith in Christ, you will be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that comes to us as your people. We thank you for this good news that we see, that we have and serve and worship a powerful and sovereign and redeeming God. We thank you for the grace that you've extended to us in Christ. We pray that you continue to humble us and point our hearts and our minds and our love more and more to Jesus. Amen.